It's time for the Hezzy Jimbo Podcast, brought to you by the boys from Beyond the Arc. We'll talk the latest NBA news and provide our own in-depth analysis. The Hezzy Jimbo Podcast, only real ballers know. Hello and welcome to the Hezzy Jimbo Podcast. I'm your host, Trent Arnold, and I'm here with my co-host, Min Dow. How are you today, Min? Not too bad, Trent. Just enjoying the early season NBA. Have it yourself. Yeah, it's been pretty good, actually. Uh, it's been a little while since we podcasted last. I'll, I'll take the wraps for that. Been a little bit busy with exams, but hopefully we'll be able to bring weekly podcast from now on. So I'm looking forward to that. We're just going to start up. Big game yesterday. I think a lot of people were at least aware of it on social media. LeBron James versus the Knicks. I guess tensions were raised, you could say. Were you watching the game and what did you see? How did you feel about it? Yeah, I was watching the game. Watched especially the uh, last quarter when Kyle Korver hit some major triples to, uh, to finish the game. But I saw the I saw the incident the first quarter between uh, Ennis Kander and LeBron James after LeBron gave a little bit of a uh, little bit of a shove to Frankie Smokes. I, I honestly think 100% fully LeBron was aware that when he stood over uh, Frankie the way he did, I think that was a complete LeBron trying to just dominate the young rookie player. I thought it was a bit of a dick move, and I was pretty happy with Kander coming in and flying the flag for his teammate because you can't just let the old rookie be punked like that and I think Kanner said the exact same thing he said we're not going to let you come in and just treat us like that so I was happy with Kanner what, what did you think who, who did you side with in that one uh probably I'm, I don't really side with anyone in this case but I think that um I think that Kanner did what any good teammate would do the big the big seven footer shows up for his uh, young rook and but even Kanner and Frankie both had really good games uh, against the Cavs as well yeah well Frankie had what six steals Played really good. I mean, some of those steals even come against LeBron himself. And I really liked what I saw from Frankie in that. Like, he didn't back down. And it seemed like when that altercation happened, it brought out a bit of dog in him. Like, he was really rabid on the ball. Didn't want to get beaten by LeBron. Every time LeBron tried to post him up and back him down, Frankie just didn't give up. He tried to keep his get his body into LeBron. Didn't let himself just be put into the goal, which was really impressive for a guy who was giving up so much size. And, yeah, I was... I really liked his game, and I think that, obviously, Dennis Smith Jr. looks like he's got a much higher ceiling than Frankie, but LeBron might regret saying those words one day when Frankie Smokes is out there lighting the league up. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Frank, Frankie seems like he's got the he's got that dog and he's got that work ethic in him that, uh, that and I think a lot of people have red flags about European guards coming in the league. So you can just see, he's closing games for a reason. Like, his shot's not falling at the moment, but you can see defensively, he's willing to knuckle down, play 94 feet, not going to give up ground, and we know even even the older case with LeBron, you can see he was you know he was given a couple of jabs, and and then I finally when Kanda came in, you you can saw that you know none, neither one to back down to even the, arguably the best player in the world. Well, I think even if Frankie doesn't get better, he's already like a dog defensively, like we said, he's definitely a capable defensive role player at the very worst, and he's also got we've seen it before, he's got good chemistry with Porzingis, but he's also got really good passing vision. I think the one thing that's letting him down at the moment is he doesn't quite have the ball handling skills or the scoring capabilities to get in the spots and be a threat, and that'll open up things for teammates. But when things do open up for teammates, he at least has the passing ability and vision to like capitalize on that. So when he becomes yeah. more dangerous to himself, I think he could be a really good player, and I think he could be the perfect guard next to Porzingis because you probably don't want a guy like Dennis Smith Jr. who's going to, you know, could potentially be a superstar himself, and he's going to take a lot of shots and try and create his own offense. A guy like Frank who's going to you know, move the ball, make some really good passes, set Paul Zingas up, and then play hounding defense on the other end. If he becomes as good as he hopefully can be, I mean, he could be the perfect partner for Pozingas if he continues playing the way he has. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And um, look, if you have if you have a defensive mind guard and you have Porzingis, you chuck your shooters around there. Like at the moment, they've got Tim Hardaway, who, who was 28-10-5 that game, Courtney Lee, 
two or five from downtown in the game against the Cavs. If they put the shoot, those shooters around them, I think it's a perfect uh, perfect fit for that Knicks roster. I agree. I think that the Knicks are actually doing some things right. I think they moved on from the uh, Mello, moved on from Rose, got rid of Phil Jackson. Obviously, starting to build around Porzingis now, and they could be in the right direction. and might not even be, might not even be as long a road back to the top as well, maybe not the top because they've never really been at the top. But never. might not be a road back to a a little bit better than mediocrity before long. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I think um, yeah, they could potentially be a, a lower tier playoff team this season if it, if it, if it rolls right out right for them. We better move on from the Knicks because we've already spent five minutes on them, and this was too much. Yeah, that's too that's much. too much on the Knicks. No one wants to talk about the Knicks for that long. But we've also got a little bit more, I guess, news around the league, some more beefs. Uh, Rudy Gobert obviously uh, had an injury against the Heat. Dion Waiters going for a loose ball, sort of fell on him awkwardly. Uh, Rudy went off, got checked, come back out, played for a little bit. But then the next day, they obviously sent him for scans, discovered he had a right knee bone bruise, I think it was, and he's going to miss four to six weeks. So firstly, I guess we can talk about the impact that Utah is going to have missing Gobert, and then also the... I guess the couple of comments that have been made recently by Gobert saying that it was a dirty play by Dion. I mean, it didn't look too dirty. Dion himself come out, has come out and said it wasn't dirty, didn't intend it to be dirty. And uh, he said, shot back. I guess Gobert just got his feelings hurt. And Gobert, pretty good comment. I think Gobert's pretty smart with some of this stuff. He always had some good comebacks. He said, it's not my feelings that are hurt, it's my knee. So <laughs> I love that. Yeah, so what's your take on the whole situation and how are the Jazz going to fare now without their best player on board look I don't think I don't think the the, the waiters uh, knock on the knee I don't think that was intentional I don't think it was uh, malicious at all I think it was kind of inadvertent and that's just sometimes how the game's played especially um, yeah. especially when you're such a big guy like Gobert you know you, someone's bound to roll into your knee you know, once in a while because it's such a big target but um, look I'm, the Jazz are in trouble did you say four to six weeks yeah four to six weeks it said and it is only a bone bruise, so I don't think there's any structural damage. But, yeah. yeah, four to six weeks for that one, and I really can't see how they're going to... He's one of the main offensive contributors for them, not not because he's obviously creating offense, but the efficiency that he's able to score out really helps out their offense, which is not great. So it's going to be difficult for them, and obviously their defense is what gets them through games, but he's the anchor of that defense, and don't know what they're going to do without him for those four to six weeks. Yeah, it's going to be tough, especially they, especially they don't want to rush a big guy like Gobert back and who's such an integral part of their season long term. Um, but at the moment, they're 6-8. and eight. Uh, Even in the last game without Gobert, they got smashed by the Wolves. And the, the main thing they've been relying on this season has been their uh, top five ranked defense. Yeah. 101 points for 100 possessions. But yeah. it's their offense this season that's really let them down. And look, Gobert's not the, obviously it's not the, um, the biggest offensive threat out there, but... He's a hard roller, you know. He'll he, that that alone sets the gravity for um, their, the Utah Jazz offense. And losing that and replacing him with you know maybe a Favors or an Epe Udo or someone like that is a big downgrade. And also their rebounding as well will take a major hit too. So not only does their their top you know their anchor and their the floor of their team is going to get chopped down a couple of pegs for Gobert, but also. I think their offense is probably going to only get worse, if you ask me. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, it's a bit of a dorky phrase, but it's one that's growing in popularity. I always like to talk about it, that vertical spacing that he provides. And it mm. just means like when he does roll, like you said, he rolls hard to the rim, and that just means that someone's got to come down generally and bump the roller, which leaves guys like Joe Ingles open from three. And I know in that last game without Gobert, Joe Ingles, I don't think he scored. And I 
he obviously if he didn't score, he didn't hit a three either. So there's that those guys like that. He's been capitalising from a hard role man like Gobert and taking him out. I think it affects some of the other guys too that get open looks just because of that spacing that he creates. But you know, being a threat above the rim and having people suck in and the help side to bump the roller and they obviously can't recover back in time to some of those shooters. But with him gone now, Derek Favors isn't quite as dangerous as, as a lob threat at all and he's probably popping for 15-foot jumpers instead and it's it's really not going to put as much pressure on the rim which means shooters aren't going to get open and it could lead to a lot of struggles for the Jazz because they've already got a negative 2.3 net rating as it is and if the defense, defense slips some and then that offense slips even further, that's going to jump out to, you know, minus 5, minus 6 and then all of a sudden you're one of the worst teams in the league. So does not look good for the Jazz at all. Hope they can recover. But, I mean, on the plus side, opens up some more chances for my boy Donovan Mitchell. Oh, and, here we go. Yeah, and hopefully Favors too can, you know, get some favour. But that was not an intentional punt. But, yeah. Yeah, but <laughs> main, mainly Donovan Mitchell, right? Mainly Donovan Mitchell. Well, actually, I'm more interested in Favors at this stage because you're looking at Favors and um, a lot of people have talked about him as a trade chip, I guess. And with yeah. Rudy Gobert out for four to six weeks, he's going to get a lot of time at centre. I already noticed oh, yeah. like he was playing in the mid-20s with Gobert there. But ever since Gobert's gone down, I think he's been playing like 30-plus minutes. So it's a real chance for him to showcase some of his value. And maybe he plays really well, gets back to averaging, you know, 17 points, nine rebounds. And maybe they decide that the Gobert and Favors fit didn't work out as well as they do. And they try and shop him while his value is a little bit higher. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good point. Four to six weeks is a great time to, uh, to shop your value around. All right, so moving on from the news, we're just going to look at some of the early season trends. And I guess probably the biggest story right now, yeah, probably the biggest story in the league that's not hasn't been expected, Gordon Hayward obviously went down with injury. Now you've got the Boston Celtics. They started out 0-2 and they're on a 12-game win streak. So the informed team of the competition, to almost say. The Celtics have been brilliant. They've dealt with injuries to Horford, dealt with injuries to Kyrie. Obviously, they're uh, missing Hayward, which is obviously meant to be one of their big, big uh, signings. But they've been really good. The rookies, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, massive acquisitions. And the defense has been surprisingly good, as has that rebounding. What have you seen so far from the Celtics that you've liked? The main thing I like is just the camaraderie of the team it seems like it has. Um, especially when you saw Gordon Hayward go down. You saw his teammates. They were, they were in arms together. You know, you could saw Kyrie was, was crying. You could see everyone was heartbroken. But the thing is, after that 0-2 start, Stevens, they've gone a 12-game 12, 12 winning streak. They've brought them together. They've played as a team, and you can see that they've, you know, they've knuckled down defensively, and especially with the high player turnover, they've just been incredible defensively. At the moment, they've the top in the league in defensive rating with ninety five point four, and then in their game in their um, twelve game winning streak, it's I think it's about ninety three. So they've only locked down defensively, and look, their offense hasn't been, you know, the greatest during the, even this during this whole stretch. I think it's fifteenth in the league, but it's just their defense, like. It, some statistics, they're top, top 10 in defensive rebounding percentage, they're fourth. They're top 10 in contested shots, they're top 10 in defended field goal percentage, and also they're top 10 in, uh, in not allowing turnovers for themselves. So like, those sort of stats, the shows they look after the ball, they defend the rock, and you, know, you don't need an elite offense if, you can, if, you have your, if your floor is so high like the Celtics is. I agree. I actually got three points, I guess, off of that. Our first one, Brad Stevens, Coach of the Year, Looking really good. Thoughts on yeah. that one? I, I definitely agree. At this point, he's the clear favourite. And then, obviously, two other points that I wanted to bring up. We talked about their rebounding, I think, in the first podcast that we had just before the season. We said it was going to take a gang effort, and it's really showed. Like Jason Tatum is actually a great rebounder. 
Jalen Brown can rebound. Marcus Smart's a good guard rebounder. Terry Rozier is a great rebounder. And like you've still only got Horford averaging eight a game. Baines obviously comes in and provides a bigger body, but lots of those guards and wings, they're actually exceptionally good rebounders. My boy, and I think your boy as well, Shemi's been out there. He's contributing on both ends. That's been awesome. And it is yeah. really good to see. Like We were skeptical of that. And like you said, fourth in uh, defensive rebounding percentage or fourth in rebounding overall, whatever one it was. That's incredible yeah. to see that they've done that with the cattle they have. And it just shows, I mean, maybe the cattle, the big man cattle aren't as good as we expect from other uh, from most other teams. But the cattle on the wing and on the um, guard, it really is, like you mentioned, a five-man effort. So it's been great to see. And another one, this was kind of raised on the uh, Ringer NBA show by Chris Vernon, but you've got the number one ranked Boston Celtics on defense, Kyrie Irving, playing 34 minutes a game, and then you've got the number two ranked Oklahoma City Thunder, and you've got uh, Carmelo Anthony playing, what, 32 minutes a game. And when those two are obviously known as bad defenders, what do you think that says as a trend for either those guys as players themselves or as a, net, a team's defense in general? Do you think it says anything there that... Two of the guys who are considered to be some of the worst defenders in the league are playing on the two best defensive teams in the league, and they're playing big minutes. I think I think I saw David Thorpe say that as well. I think uh, it, it comes down, you know, defense is a is a team team aspect. You know, all five guys have to contribute, and it's not obviously it's not as heavily weighted as offense, but each guy has to play their role and you know try their hardest. And I think that Kyrie Irving this season has proven that he is very interested in playing defensively. He's not. Really, he, I don't think he'll ever be an elite defend, uh, defensive to, uh, point guard, but he'll also what he is now is enough. You know, average, tries hard, tries to get over screens, tries to lead by example. That sort of that sort of work ethic. And obviously, you know, we'll see if the work ethic keeps up because obviously, you know, first 15, 20 games after leaving LeBron, and you know, you're wanting revenge and you want to show the league that you still, you know, that you, you're the, you're the player that why you're the player that wanted to get traded out of LeBron's shadow for a reason. Yeah, and I think that you know, or if he keeps continues this up, I think it's a uh, it's it's a good indicator that although the Celtics are a great defensive team, but also it shows that Kyrie Irving's taking um, he's he's le- he's a leader of men. He's trying to be a leader of men. He's trying to lead by example. Whereas the opposite, I think that Carmelo Anthony contri- contributes zero to nothing for um, the Oklahoma City defense. Yeah, he can battle inside. Yeah, he can. Yeah, he's a pretty solid post defender. Yes, he could rebound, but. I think it's a lot. A lot of it's on Paul George, um, who's one of the best two-way players in the league. I think he's leading the league in uh, loose balls recovered and also deflections per game. Um, Stephen Adams and also Andre Robertson. I think those three anchor that defense, and they've also got some nice um, uh, defensive players off the bench like Jeremy Grant, who um, who can contribute as well. I actually have exactly the same opinion as you there on that one. I must admit. I think that Kyrie Irving is contributing sort of average level defense to a really good defensive team. He's basically not hurting them. I don't think Carmelo's contributing much at all, like you said, but he's also not been a massive liability, obviously, because they're still playing great defense. Yeah. But I think, like, in this case, like, you put an average level point guard out there, I don't think you'd get too much more out of the Celtics defense than you are from Kyrie right now. He actually is producing at that average level, whereas I'm yeah. sure, like, like you said, they've got Adams, Roberson, and Paul George, who are all like really, really good defenders, like probably top five at their positions. And that's why that defense is so good. I think they are good in spite of Carmelo. Whereas, like you said, 100% Kyrie Irving is actually putting some effort in. I think someone's obviously said to him, like, you need to try a little bit harder on defense just to really cement yourself as a great player. And I think that's obviously showing. And the Celtics defense, I mean, they couldn't be happier with where they sit right now. 
Was there anything else you wanted to add? Because if you have nothing to add, I actually have a little bit of a rant about another one of the hot teams in the league right now that I wanted to go on. This is another interesting stat that uh, they like to put out. Although I think defensive real plus minus can be skewed by the lineups, but yeah. James Harden is sixth in amongst point guards in uh, DRPM, and then Kyrie's fourteenth. Both positive. That's a little bit interesting. Uh, interesting note I want to throw out there. That is interesting, and actually feeds into where I was going to start with my, I guess, little Rockets rant there. Another one of the hot teams in the league. I should probably know this off the top of my head, but I'm going to quickly drag up what our record is at. There we go, 11-3. and three. I was going to say 12-3, and three, but I've obviously already penciled in the uh, Toronto win today. Um, what I was going to say, so obviously the offense started off a little bit slow. The pace was a little bit slow, but we've been really good lately. Uh, 109.9 offensive rating, which obviously isn't anywhere near the Warriors, but I think I might have said this before the season, top 10 in defensive rating. The boys are sitting at 8th in defensive rating with a 101.9 defensive rating and overall their net rating is plus eight. So they've been incredibly good at the moment. They've been the second best team in the league, equal with Boston who are on that 12-0 run. Obviously their defense isn't quite to the standard that uh, Boston's is, but the offense has been even better. It's been great. And I have to kind of mention this, it's all been without Chris Paul. And with Chris Paul back, those minutes where Harden sits, there's been a massive drop-off when Harden hasn't been on the floor. So 48 minutes, a massive elite point guard player should raise the offensive rating. And I don't think having Chris Paul, who's a perennial all-defensive first-team guy, will hurt the defensive rating. So I've been pretty impressed because at the moment, we don't have a point guard defender at all. Like We've got Eric Gordon doing it, who's actually been quite good for Houston the last two years, but still not on the level of Chris Paul. So I think... Like, I'm starting to get excited. I think this team can win 60 games. And I even think Ooh. I'm going to, like, go crazy about it right now. But I think with that top, if we can get that it's at 8 right now, if you can keep it around 6, 7, 8, and you keep the off- uh, d- offensive rating around 2, I really think the Rockets can give the Warriors a run for their money. Not to say they're going to win a series, but I actually feel confident right now that they could take it to 6, maybe even 7 games if they get lucky. So I'm hugely optimistic about the Rockets. I tried not to buy into it. I know we still haven't seen how Chris Paul and James Harden fit, but the defensive side of the ball, I've just been super impressed with it. And I think Luke Mbamute might be a little head and, hidden gem. Like, you've, have you seen much of the Rockets this year? What are your thoughts on it? How do you feel like we're tracking there? Yeah, I look, it, it has been impressive. You guys got off to a great start, um, especially in your in your six, current six-game winning streak, possibly seven today if you guys do beat the Raptors. You guys have had an offensive rating of 117 and a defensive rating of around 99 so even during the stretch you've just been red hot yeah playing both sides of the ball quite pretty well and i think that you know the big acquisitions of um and underrated actually of pj tucker and luke richard marmute have been um integral for you guys defense you know can kind of shoot the ball pj tucker's around league average at 35 percent but these guys you they will trend upwards and that's even more dangerous because those guys can switch guard probably one to four marmute can even guard really small fives it's just a team that has a lot of versatility. Um, you add that to Eric Gordon. If you have Harden guarding, you know, fours as opposed to guards, it's a lot better as well. And then, you know, Trevor Reese is always a stable bet. I think the team is very interesting at this point in time. Um, but, yes, yeah, so it will be interesting to see how Paul does with the team when he comes back. But I reckon, look, even if there might be a bit of an integration, like a couple of speed bumps, that's fine. I think the major part Chris Paul play is come playoff time. His leadership his locker room presence, um, just his overall um, voice in the locker room. But also, I think last season, when when Harden went down, he, he slumped a little bit. 
the whole rocket ship went with him. But I think this season, when you have Chris Paul as well, you have two two elite point guards, guaranteed 48 minutes of elite playmaking throughout the whole game. And I think that that's really where Chris Paul will come to play against a team like the uh, Golden State Warriors. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. And there's actually a few things that sort of rose in my mind there when you were talking. And one thing was Luke Mbamute. So not sure if you've heard it or if anyone's listening has heard it, but Ben Falk was on, I think it was the Dunked On podcast recently, and he was talking about how they track player shooting in um, practice. And he was yep. saying sort of like the bad shooters shoot about 40% in practice, uh, average shooters shoot about 50% in practice, and then like the elite shooters shoot 60% plus in practice. And uh, Nate asked him if there was anyone that he remembers that stood out as like having a different result in practice to game day. And he said, yeah, yep. Luke Mbamute, when he was in practice, he'd shoot like high 60% from the from three. And here he was only shooting like low low 30s or even late 20s and only taking like two or three a game. And we were like, hey, there's something here with Luke Mbamute. Like, we have to get him more shots. And like, I always notice that when I've watched him. I feel like he should be a better player than Trevor Reza. He's a better defender than Trevor. He's a much better playmaker. Like, he can actually, when Chris Paul was not, hasn't been there at the moment, they've used sort of... Luke and Eric Gordon as co-point guards who have been running the second unit offense. He can put the ball on the floor. He can attack closeouts. He's real good at transition, can finish at the basket. And I just feel like he's just missing that three-point shot. Like, if he could take six a game and make 35, and I feel like what Ben Falk talked about, how he could make 60% plus in practice, that seems like something that could be achievable for him. And when I look at him, I feel like he could shoot a higher percentage. So I just feel like if somehow Dan Tony can get the best out of Luke Mbamute this season. He'd become a really hugely impactful player for the Rockets. And I don't know, even long-term, because I think Trevor's, Trevor Reese's contract is up at the end of this year. If they could keep him and like actually untap that thing that comes out in practice but hasn't really showcased in the game yet, I mean, he could be a really good player for the Rockets. So I'm, I'm pretty excited that there's something there, and I hope that someone can bring it out of him. Yeah, no, look, I definitely agree. I think um, last year, Mbamute shot 39% from, um, from downtown, and I think... He's um he's he was most deadly and I think he will be most deadly with Paul and Harden. He's in the corner and I think last season he shot about forty six percent from corner threes, which is extremely deadly. Look, it wasn't the highest volume. He's you know he's always been shooting in the you know in the two three per game mark. And he, look, he's not the most high volume player and this season he shoot about three a game as well. But look, if he can shoot around as you were saying, I reckon maybe maybe less less than six, around four or five a game, maybe one a quarter, a bit more and shoot around that above 35%, that's pretty dangerous, especially when you have Ryan Anderson, Gordon, Ariza, um, Tucker as well, Chris Paul and Harden. That's a multitude of shooters. And if he's wide open in the corner, I'd, I'd back him, especially with um, the, the comments Ben uh, Falk made recently. Yeah, I definitely found it interesting because I've always looked at him and thought that he was a better shooter than what he showcased. And like, there's this just a, it's just strange to see, I guess, that dissonance between practice and games and I just hope that he can tap into it because, yeah, that would be hugely impactful for the Rockets. And just another thing I thought I'd ask you comments on in relation to the Rockets, I, I think the kind of comments have moved away from people thinking that Harden and Chris Paul are going to have issues with each other because I think people are starting to realise, yeah, they'll be staggered. Uh, Chris Paul will run a lot of second unit minutes. But, um, yeah, people are sort of being moving away from the, the point of view where they think that he's going to have issues integrating with Harden and they think Chris Paul might actually struggle to come back and integrate with Eric Gordon because... Eric Gordon's obviously been killing it in those second unit minutes and he's looking like a, a legitimate superstar scorer. Like He's averaging 23 points per game. He's shooting 36% from three. And I think 24% of his possessions now are coming in the pick and roll. 
And obviously, most of those possessions aren't coming with Harden on the floor. They're coming in the, in the you know, with a bench unit. And when we said, like we said, when Chris Paul comes back and runs that bench unit, does Eric Gordon's pick and roll touches drop down from twenty four percent somewhere to sixteen? And do you lose your twenty three point game, uh, twenty three point per game score in Eric Gordon? And does it go back to closer to sixteen, which was where it was last year? So you hope that when Chris Paul comes back, I don't think it's going to affect James Harden at all. That's my stance on it right now. But I just hope that we don't lose the Eric Gordon that we've seen all of this season because he's been an incredibly good secondary option and he's even looked like a great primary option when he's playing by himself. So I hope we don't lose that. I mean, what's your thoughts? Do you think they're going to be able to mesh well? When Eric Gordon signed his contract, he did sign to be a six-man because when he signed, Beverly and Harden were there, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I don't see – look, if that's what he signed his contract for, look, maybe they've given him a taste of a starting lineup in that role, but I think he knows his role and – he obviously signed here because he wants to be happy. Yeah, he want, He's happy with the role here in terms of being a six-man or as a... Yeah, I don't think so. Guard, yeah. I don't actually think it's like the emotional element of like chemistry of starting. I think he knows that he's going to come off the bench as a six-man. Yeah. I'm just sort of not, not from a chemistry or personality point of view. I'm thinking of it more of are we going to lose some production from Eric Gordon? So Because like, Eric Gordon's playing great right now. Can Chris Paul come back and can Eric Gordon sustain that level of play with Chris Paul there? That's more the question, I think. I think Eric Gordon is a – look, he won't be averaging 23 a game when Chris Paul comes back, I'll tell you that now. But at the same time, he's shooting 42% from the field. I think when Chris Paul comes back, the quality of looks will be better in terms of spot-up, catch-and-shoots, catch-and-drive opportunities. He obviously will be less involved in the pick-and-rolls you mentioned. But, you know, if he averages about 16, 17 a game on 46% shooting, look, that might be a better because he's – He's more efficient. He's he might be sacrificing shots, but also it's for the better of the team because at the same time, Chris Paul's still a top ten player, and you've got to cater for that. And even though when Chris Paul leads the second unit, Eric Gordon will likely be at least a secondary or maybe a third um, handler at all times. So he'll still get his shots. He'll still get his touches. He obviously won't be as effective, but he'll definitely be more efficient down the line, I reckon. Yeah, you are right there. Like He's obviously putting up 23 points per game, which is the most that he's had in his career before. But um, he's shooting 36% from three, whereas last year it was 37. The year before that, it was 38.5. And then the year before that, it was 45%. So there's definitely some uptick that you could be seeing from the three-point percentage, which is obviously better looks from Chris Paul. But the one thing that I hope he can kind of sustain is that three throw rate because at the moment he's getting 5.6 three throws a game, which he hasn't done since his LA, LA days when he was at, uh, scoring 22.3 points per game. So that's the thing I think that's come back into his game. And like I said before, with the pick and roll touches. But I still think that if he's if you've got Chris Paul out there running a primary pick and roll, kicking it to Gordon, Gordon can either shoot if he's open or attack a closeout. And I guess he can still up that three-point percentage and still get to the three throw line. It's just... You're going to have an elite playmaker like Chris Paul who can hopefully set him up so he's got an advantage over his man. But yeah, yeah, I definitely think myself that they can coexist. It's just I hope that Eric Gordon doesn't have to take too much of a hit. Well, Eric Gordon, he's averaging around six or close to seven uh, three-point cat and shoots a game. at It's 36%, but it also has an effective field goal percentage of 54% on catch and shoots. Yeah. And I can only see that going up, to be honest. That's, yeah, same. That's, that, he, saw, he saw around the same mark efficiency last season. He had Chris Paul, another elite playmaker, James Harden as well. Look, the catch and shoot opportunities will only get more wide open and less um, less traffic on his on his shots. So, Eric Gordon is a very adaptable player. I think that he won't. He's he's not a guy that needs the ball all the time. He's not a guy like you know, for example, like Evan Turner or something like that who needs the ball and can't spot up. 
Eric Gordon can definitely do that. And I, th I don't think, um, especially in Dan Tony's um, pace system, I think it'll be fine. He's one of the guys I, I, I wished Portland went for, but um, ultimately I think he had no interest in um, signing for his old GM, Neil Show. All right, so just talking about Chris Paul, we've mentioned Beverly a little bit. guess that leaves it open for the last, well, one of the last teams we're going to talk about, the Los Angeles Clippers. Obviously, Blake Griffin uh, not playing as well as he was earlier in the season. What have you seen from the Clippers that's caused such a drop-off? I mean, their guard depth's taken a massive hit. Injuries to Beverly, Tia Dosic, and they're missing Gallo as well. So a few issues for the Clippers, and they're obviously, I think, a lot of people were concerned that the injuries would really impact them, and so far that's been the case. So what have you seen? Seen the defensive game being quite poor in terms of obviously their their rating isn't great. They're top, currently uh, bottom ten in the league at twenty first. Look, that's meant to be their identity. To be honest, meant to be a defense first team on a Doc Rivers as a defensive mind head coach, and they haven't been able to rely on that all season long. And it's just in classic Clipper fashion, they start off five and two. They've run, since, since then they've lost six straight, as you've mentioned. Injuries just been hurting them. Just Gallows went down. Beverly's currently injured. Ted Dosich is out indefinitely. It hurts their depth to the point where they've had to rely on guys like Willie Reed and I don't mind, but Wesley Johnson, Sundarius Thornwell, it really goes down the depth chart and where it really questions if that depth can really compete for a lower seed in the Western Conference. At that point, I really don't think they can. Um, this is one of the teams where I thought, you know, they'll start off hot, the storylines will be great, you know, you get Point Blake and all that sort of stuff, but look, what, Blake's been good, 23, 8 and almost 5 assists, but he's shooting 43% from the field. He's turned the ball over a little bit too much. Luke, Lou Williams has been good as well, but I think it gets to the point where this team needs to get their players back and remain healthy. And if they have that sort of depth, sure, they could uh, make a push for the playoff seed, but at the moment, they're only going downhill. And with, um, with teams like the Pelicans and the Blazers and the Wolves and, they, and even the Grizzlies go, um, in the thick of the playoff race, I think it'll be tough for them to crack it. Yeah, Griffin's numbers sound okay, but they've taken a bit of a dip since early in the season. And I know that his percentage of the rumours dropped massively. I think last season he was around 68% inside the inside the paint or inside the restricted area. And this year it's down to 60%. And he has picked up and starting to make some shots from three, which obviously helps his efficiency. But like you said, 43% shooting, probably not what you want to see from a 6'8", 6'9", big man. And he kind of tries to play, I guess, in a LeBron mold or a Ben Simmons mold. But like LeBron shoots 60, 65% from the field, not 43%. So that's where Griffin can really do some damage to your team when he's not scoring an elite rate. And a lot of people thought that with the ticking, uptick in three-point percentage that he might actually become more efficient. But when you're dropping down to you know 60% in the paint for a big man, it's really not great for you. And he does take a fair few mid-range shots still. So it really hurts the Clippers there. And... Uh, without the creating and playmaking of some of those guys like Tia Dosich and even Gallo and Beverly, obviously guys like DeAndre Jordan who are usually able to get such efficient looks aren't able to do as much as they once were and that's where the Clippers get hurt. And like you said, defensive intensity hasn't been there. Doc Rivers is probably difficult to play with. It seems like everyone gets a little bit disheartened. The chemistry seems to go after about 10 games. But yeah, the defense has just been pretty poor and six-game losing streak. I don't think they've got any chance of making the playoffs now, especially if these guys stay out for any longer than a couple more a couple more weeks, so yeah, I definitely agree. I think, as you said, his his uh, efficiency inside the paint and inside the restricted area has gone down, but also he's taken three times more three point attempts as he did last season. Like he's changed his game up a lot. He's more of a face up four or face up big as opposed to what he used to be. You know, he's trying to dunk on guys all the time and try to bull rush to the rim. He still tries to bull rush to the rim like a lot, but I think it 
he's taken on the primary um, playmaking, also scoring role since Chris Paul left. I really think that's hurt him. Like previously, when Chris Paul was out, um, Blake Griffin was pretty much a 500 player in terms of with the Clippers. Yeah, and I kind of see that around that mark as well, especially if the Clippers keep having their poor injury luck. Yeah, so just I think that's enough Clippers. Like we said earlier on, you don't want to talk about the Knicks too long. You don't want to talk about the Clippers too long. Yeah, definitely. We, we might move to the other side of town in LA there because um, I think they've got a really interesting sort of rotation to think about. I mean, they've got a lot of good young players. Pretty much all of them are contributing, but there's just not enough minutes for all of them. You've got, obviously, Lonzo Ball, who they want to keep. Kyle Kuzma's looking excellent. Larry Nance Jr., who had, had been playing well. Julius Randle's not getting a lot of minutes, but when he does play, he's super productive. Jordan Clarkson is, obviously, I think people would know, I'm not a huge fan of him, but... Every now and then he produces a game which is like, you know, 23, 5 and 5. And yesterday he played brilliantly, was efficient. And he even uh, closed out the game for them down the stretch over Lonzo, who stayed on the bench. But you're looking at these guys and you don't know what to do with them sometimes. Like, what would you do with this Lakers team? Like, who goes, who stays? How do you kind of build around some of these players you want to keep? I forgot to mention Brandon Ingram, who's been incredible. Starting to look way more aggressive. He's been looking a lot more confident, both going to the rim and with his shot. And obviously, he's always had pretty nice feel for the game, but he's finally starting to showcase some of that with his scoring game. And you've obviously, like we've said, I've named five or six young guys, and you can only really have a core of three or four young guys there. They're going to get big minutes. And obviously, Clarkson and Larry Nance Jr. and Randall, all of these guys want to play more than 15 minutes a game. So... If you were the Lakers GM, what would you do with them? The one thing I have noticed with this Lakers team is that they've defended their tails off. They're 6-8 and eight at the moment, a little bit below 500, which, you know, it's a little bit better rate than I expected. Um, they're fourth uh, defensively at the moment. But also, just, you know, they're at the moment they're top nine in uh, defensive field goal percentage and also they're top in the league in contested shots. They defend their tails off and have a lot of guys who've showed that they've, they were willing to play on that end. You know, obviously like Ingram... Caldwell Pope, even um, Julius Randle this year has been a lot better. Kuzma as well. Um, that's that's the kind of attitude I like to see out of young teams. A lot of young teams try to you know they try to be scoring first teams and try to you know excite the crowd, that sort of all that sort of nonsense. But I like the team of where they've come and the message that Luke Walton's set out to them. But in terms of their core and going forward, look, there's been plenty of rumours about um, LeBron James and Paul George, as everyone has read by now. And I think that going forward. You know, if you have that Kuzma, Ingram, Ball, obviously not in that order, but if you had that trio going forward, I think it's a great core in terms of um, in terms of their drawing power as well in the future. So if you know, if you can, Clarkson's on about 11, 12 per year, very movable contract. Lopez is expiring. Contavious Colwell Pope is expiring as well. They've got they've got money on the books that they can easily get rid of or are expiring. And if you've you know, if you can clear a little bit, keep some veteran guys around, maybe like um, Bogut and um, if you bring in guys like George and LeBron, I think it's a it's a great future for them. Yeah, so I guess on the Lakers, one thing that is obviously the big story with the Lakers, are you worried about Lonzo at all? Do you think he's going to be a core piece going forward or does he deserve to be a core piece going forward based on what you've seen so far? I'm not, I'm not worried about Lonzo at all, to be honest. It's well documented about his shot. It's well documented about whether he can score off the dribble or not. It's also well documented about how he's so very passive off the pick and roll. I think that you've done some a little bit of breakdown on ball. What do you what do you reckon um, is his main issue at the moment? Yeah, so I guess we're getting into promotional territory right now because I'm hoping <laughs> to release that in a couple of days. But I, yeah, I went through and charted. 
I obviously didn't didn't want to get too much into the shot because everyone knows the shot doesn't look great. Hasn't been falling. I didn't want to get into the mechanics of it. Probably not the guy for that job. But I just thought I'd go through and look at all of the layups that he's taken and had some clips. I used the site 3ball.io, which is actually an incredible resource for anyone that wants to look at basketball players. You can just type in the guy's name. You put in the shot type layups. Then you go make or miss. And I went through all of his makes and misses. And I just sort of noticed one thing that he kind of has trouble with, obviously, is uh, going against help defense, especially centers. He doesn't really know how to evade shot blockers. Doesn't have the strength to get his body into them or finish over them. But one thing he was a lot better at was if he attacks on the catch or on a closeout, he obviously is able to find those seams and finish. Like he does have nice touch with either hand. So if he can get by or evade the rim protection, he's just fine. But at the moment, I don't know if it's like I don't know exactly what it is. But yeah, he's, he just seems to be lacking a little bit of the strength, a little bit of that touch around the rim. Every time a shot blocker comes, he kind of panics. And I think it might just be even. Like, I know a lot of people have talked about how when he's dribbling the ball, he doesn't want to get... Yeah, when he's dribbling the ball, he doesn't want to be stripped. And a lot of people say he's quick to get rid of the ball. And I feel yeah. like it's the same thing applies when he comes around the rim. So when he sees help come, he's very quick to try and get that shot off. And a lot of that time, that just results in a really bad miss. Like, he throws the ball so hard against the backboard. But then when he does have a sort of little bit of a lane or a little bit of a slip, he's got really nice touch with either hand. So I kind of feel like it is a massive confidence issue right now. Maybe he just needs to get some shots off, which... He did against the Bucks actually. That was the first game I tracked where he made two or three over the help defender and he did have nice touch and he did one with his right hand which was one of the first right-handed finishes he'd had all year which is funny because he's right-handed and then yeah, he had another one on the left which was really nice. So I think as that confidence grows and I think we saw that against the Bucks with the becoming the first ever player to get a triple-double oh, first, first ever player, youngest player ever to get a triple-double <laughs> Uh, yeah, we saw him get that first youngest triple-double that anyone's ever had, beat LeBron James out by, I think, five days. And, yeah, the confidence he played with was obviously massive. He he was more ready, he more readily took his three-point shot, and he also was much better attacking the rim, which, like I said, when he is a threat on the pick-and-roll or when he's a threat to score, it's obviously usually a lot easier. I think as he gets that confidence up, starts attacking with a little bit more aggressiveness, I think that he's going to be okay with either hand at the rim because he's got the length. He's pretty athletic. Like, he can get up and finish lob dunks or that sort of thing. So as soon as he gets used to NBA-level shot blockers and NBA-level competition and adjust to how they play him, I think that that percentage will come up a little bit around the rim. And I mean, that three-point shot's a completely different question. We'll leave that one alone. But I feel like he's going to at least be able to get laps going forward. Yeah, look, he's got great size, around 6'5", 6'6". You know, he's a bit leaner for... um especially for his size, but at the same time, in terms of his shot-making ability inside, a six, one-sixth of his shots have been blocked inside. Yeah. He's only, he's only um, shooting at 39% uh, when it comes to less than five feet near the rim, and he's still only 20 years old. Look, you've got to give him time. He's not going to be a superstar from day one. Not everyone is. You know, everyone can be you know, a transcendent player like Michael yeah. Jordan or LeBron James or Kareem. You can't be like that. You've got to, be, you've got to give him some time, and... I think he's, he's just adjusting to the, the pace of the game, the limelight of Tinseltown, and just the roster around him because there's going to be a lot more. There's going to be a lot more player turnover in the next couple of years as well, especially if um, another big name comes to LA next this off season. So when you think when you think about Lonzo, in terms of their best lineups, he's in both of them. Like in terms of the the ratings of the best lineups, the plus twenty two, he's in both of them. I think that's for a reason because. Some people might say he gets rid of the ball too quickly, and you know, might be because he's young, might be because he's still getting used to the game. But also, he knows he's always. It seems like he's always two, three steps ahead of the game. He sees the floor so well, like a young Jason Kidd. I think 
I've been people have been being a dead horse with that um with that comparison, but yeah, he sees he can he makes a quick uh, quick ahead pass pass ahead uh, sorry kick ahead pass. He's always finding the right mismatches. He's always finding the guys in the right spots. Hit him in the shooting pocket. These sort of things, these nuances of the game that a lot of people don't see. I think Lonzo Ball hits him right in the nail on the head. In terms of his scoring ability, yes, he needs to open that up because a lot of the time, off pick and rolls, you can see he's a little bit passive. He's looking for a, a, a kick out pass or he's trying to look for a dump off um, down low. He's not quite always looking forward to going to the rim. And I think that with his size and his partial ambidextrous finishing ability, I think that he'll over time he will improve. And I think I think he'll be fine to be honest. Yeah, I agree. Like things that he's really good at that you've mentioned is like that, being able to move the ball, being unselfish having just incredible passing vision, like understanding the game at a level that not many guys can see the game at. Those are things that can't be taught and those are things that he's massively showcased. Like no questions at all. Those elements of the game, he's truly is one of the better one of the better guys at it in the NBA already. He's obviously a really strong rebounder. I've been massively impressed with his defense. Like he's a really good defender. The IQ that he has on the offensive end really translates on defense. Switched on as a help defender. He's got good hands, obviously good length. He actually fights really hard. Like when he gets screened out of the play, a lot of guys would give up. I think you talk about Kyrie Irving giving up, Damian Lillard, guys like that, James Harden, obviously. But then you've got Lonzo Ball, who will literally—I've seen him do it a couple of times now—screened out of the play, and he'll run his, run his ass off to get back into the play and try and block the shot. Which, I mean, you really want to see that from a guy who sometimes his his intensity or his will to win has been questioned. And I think, like we've said, the things that he struggles with, just like a little bit of lower body strength. Maybe his touch and confidence and shooting and stuff like that needs to be worked on a little bit. But those are things that will come with time and come with reps. And the things that he showcased now that can't be taught, you just got to believe that the guy will develop because he's a natural basketball player and he's got a great feel for the game. And I think, like you said, he'll get there. No issues with that. Well, another thing as well is um, I think that's, the, that's the, the message that Luke Wallen's been sending to the team. You know, you've got to defend it. And, you know, if you want shots and you want to win basketball games, it starts on the defensive end because defense wins championships ultimately. Yeah. And he's, and he's ninth in defensive rule plus minus. Again, not when, we're not the biggest fans of the stats, but it shows something. It shows that Lonzo Ball can defend. And at UCLA, I had a little bit of issues with um, his general focus, his, his, his demeanor, whether he was ready to get his stance or not. But look, at 6'6", 190, and if he's willing to put in the effort, he has the tools for it. It's all about the effort and, uh, and the IQ, and it seems like he's quite high basketball IQ on um, both ends of the floor. I guess we should probably wrap up from here. Uh, anything else you'd like to add before we do go? I'd just also like to mention that, um, that currently the Blazers have the third best defensive rating in the league. Yeah, I think we should pencil in some a couple of minutes next time to talk about the Blazers. I might spend the next week or so really getting in some... or hours? Uh, next couple of hours on the next podcast <laughs> to talk about the Blazers. I might spend some time over this next week getting into some game film and watch a couple of those games and we can get into a pretty serious conversation about your team considering you gave me those 10 minutes to stay on the Rockets. Yeah, fair enough. I, I'd appreciate that. And just, I guess before we leave it up, signing off, we're going to have a Q&A live Facebook video sometime in the next four to five days. We're going to use the hashtag AskTheArc. And basically what it's going to be is give everyone sort of five or so days to listen to this podcast. If you have any questions, tweet them at us or Facebook us with the hashtag and send them in. And we're going to have a live Q&A. Hopefully people will jump on, ask us some questions related to the podcast or even not related to the podcast. And we want to try and get some engagement going on with the audience. See if there's some other guys that maybe we can communicate to each other through the comments section, make some basketball-related friendships, and that would be great. 
We'll also, like I said before, I'm looking to put out a video, maybe an article to go along with it about Lonzo Ball. Do you have anything coming up, Min? Just a lot of, um, we'll just be a lot of really active on social media, Twitter, Facebook, jump on those. Um, make sure you be active and comment, like, um, subscribe to this podcast as well. And I think that, um, yeah, that over, especially starting from now for the rest of the season, you'll, you'll see us very active on um, social media. It's been a good podcast, went a little bit longer than expected as always, but it's been good fun. We will talk to you guys next week. See you, Mint. All right, see you later, Trent.